Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Somewhere between science and superstition. Such sights to show you. Strange Eons. Welcome to Strange Eons Radio. That's Eric still over at his house. Yes. That's Vanessa still over at her house. Hello. I'm Kelly, and we are out of an abundance of caution doing this one more week. <laughs> uh We'll be doing that, but you know what? The bummer of all of this is, you guys, is uh, without you coming to, you're literally the only people who come visit me, right? Sure, yeah. Oh, which means <laughs> the house gets cleaned every Saturday <laughs> in preparation for you guys. And uh, just, just, I live in a shithole now. Oh, you live in such, yeah, your house is always impeccably clean. And I've always been like, man, Kelly really like holds it together as a single guy. (laughs) He really maintains a nice looking home. And now I know the secret why. (laughs) (laughs) It's all an illusion. Albums Uh, everywhere out of their sleeves. (laughs) I did. I did have albums everywhere for a while. Um, Now I've got all of this stuff. Oh, you guys made the mistake. Everybody probably has a, a glimpse into my mind. I've got like a collector's mentality, but I also will like focus on something weird and then yeah. just boom. And then yeah. and then I slowly get over it and move on to something else. And uh, we were over at uh, Matt Flora's house after Crypticon. And he had this lovely uh, black velvet painting from the 70s with a cool frame and had like an Asian landscape. And I was like, Damn, that would look great over my fireplace. Because as you know, my my living room kind of feels about 1974. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I decided to go online and look for black velvet paintings on eBay oh. and everything. Uh, I was like, why are these so expensive? These are <laughs> most, mostly hideous. So why are they $300, $400 for these things? But then I said, wait a second, there's got to be people who are painting these now, right? Oh, There's got to be okay. current black velvet paintings. So I went on to Etsy and I found myself this lovely, gigantic black velvet painting for like $90. It's gorgeous. It's huge. So huge that I can't just put it into any old frame. So I had to actually, and it came just the basic painting. So I, I had to buy the stretcher bars, the, the wood that you would put together and then stretch the canvas over and staple. And then I found one frame that I liked that wasn't quite the right size for this. And so I'm actually going to be changing the shape of an old frame. Now, finally, all the tools that I'm buying have come in just in time for me to be like, I don't know if I'm all that interested in doing all this work. (laughs) It needed to all show up at the same time. So I could have gotten really excited about it and done it in a weekend. But now I'm like, that sounds like so much work. I have often thought though, it would be really neat to learn how to frame and it would save me so much money. If I could just build some pieces of wood and get a piece of glass cut and just make it work. But yeah, instead I have to give Michael's a lot of money to do very fine-ish well, work. Yeah, and the problem really is, I mean, it's easy to build a frame. You know, if you've got a miter saw that will cut a 
uh, you know, even just a hand miter saw, mm. it'll cut that angle precisely for you and everything. And then you're just gluing and stapling the frame together. And then you have somebody go and cut the glass for you. I assume that mm. seems, that seems harder than the other stuff to me. But uh, at the end of it, we have to put a, a price on our time, right? Yeah. yeah. And I don't know what you get paid hourly, Vanessa, but that is your price. And if it takes, say, three three hours to build this frame at what you charge for your time, then uh-huh. you look at Michael's and go, yeah, that frame is cheap. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. You've convinced me. Yeah. Because it is, I mean, it would be like, I'd have to take a class or something. I've never used a hand tool to cut a piece of wood in my life. So... I'd be very dangerous for a hot minute. I, that's not true. I've used a chainsaw. I know how to use a chainsaw. I know that you there have you an go. electric chainsaw. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. And it works extremely well. It's great. And I have not hurt myself yet. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear that. But yeah, I don't know how to like do woodworking, which seems magical and wonderful to me. But I also don't have like a garage or a place that I could do it. So. Right. Michael's is fine. All right. I'll I'll be not mad at them. <laughs> I can't wait to see your painting. I can't wait to see it hung up when we come over. In, well, who knows uh, who knows if I'll get around to it now. I've lost the drive. You have to. You have to now because we can leave it laying it. on the ground. <laughs> leave it laying on your floor. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll send a picture of it to you, Vanessa. It's really, really pretty. Oh. And the cool thing about them, uh, I just love art, but having um an actual piece of art that's not a print or something like that. That's really cool to me. So this is a, you know, a hand-painted black velvet painting. Uh, You guys, are you watching Stranger Things or have you watched Stranger Things? Or do you even care about Stranger Things? Only the first episode. I just finally got to watch it because I was finally not sticking enough to... So I've only seen the first episode. Yeah. First of all, uh, seven episodes out right now. The next seven come... or, Or no, it's the next two come and July, and the next two are both like two hours long. Okay. So, Jeez. very strange. <laughs> I'm not sure. A confusing yeah. inability to figure out how to put their stuff out. <laughs> well, I kind of love it because every episode has uh, varied in length, too. So, mm-hmm. some are over an hour, some are under an hour. So, uh, I, I like that idea. Uh, I didn't love this first seven episodes. Oh. There's also this globe trotting going on and espionage and surrounding these kids. And, and I'm just like, you know what? This worked really well when it was small town horror. But yeah. as soon as it starts getting bigger and bigger, like I guess you have to do with a sequel of any kind, uh, it starts falling apart for me. So, mm-hmm. And the acting is, these kids were never that good of actors, but as they've gotten older, they haven't gotten better Right. So it's it's one of those things where I'm like, I really hope this is the final season. I think they've got no, they've got a fifth one. Yeah, they've uh, got one more. I think they committed they, to one more after this. I, I saw like a clickbait line. Uh, the producers were crying at the pitch they were given for Stranger Things five, <laughs> season five. <laughs> so sounds legit. <laughs> I'll say this, uh, so much of a shakeup at Netflix. There's no promise they're getting a season five. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, no kidding. Mm. Oh, is Netflix being going through some structural changes? Well, just uh, it's being made known that they have uh, 
spent a lot more money than they're making. Yeah. Um, so I, I imagine somebody will come in and uh, and take control and say, hey, we're supposed to be making money with this business. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Well, um, <clears throat> I can say from the first episode, I, I did enjoy the first episode quite a bit. And um, <clears throat> it it definitely had a Nightmare on Elm Street quality to it. That was pretty fun and very horror in a way that <clears throat> was nice. Enjoyed yeah. it. You guys see Strange New Worlds? You all caught up, caught up on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super Digging fun. It. Super fun. Every episode, I'm like, I, they're going to they're gonna drop the ball. They're going to lose momentum. They're going to do something stupid. And instead, every single episode, I feel like it's almost like better and better than the previous one. So oh. I'm really excited. I gave a little review. If, you haven't, if people haven't watched, what was the, uh, I think it's the fourth episode mm-hmm. with, that featured Spock. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they start that one battle. I'm going, oh, I hope they at least do an homage a little bit to. The- oh, they went full on and just played. That they played the music. They played the music. Yeah. Yeah. They did it. They did it. Excellent. Oh, it was so fun. I, you know, I don't tend to love like zany, and that episode was definitely zany. But I don't care. I don't well, they, they kept saying, I don't like hijinks. Yeah, right. exactly. So, you know. <laughs> I, I will say this. I, I thought it was a little too early to bring in a comedic episode, and I thought they pulled it off. Yeah. yeah. So, the fact Same. that they were um, leaning into not liking this kind of comedy made me feel like, okay, when you're going to do a body swap, which I think is pretty lazy, when you're going to do a body swap uh, episode, then the only people you can do it with is with two Vulcans who aren't <laughs> going to freak out over the entire thing. And I thought that that was really a smart way to do it. It was definitely a super smart way. And I just, yeah, I just enjoyed, you know, there's so much character development happening now where you've got the, you know, you find out that number one is not fun and therefore gets to play some bingo and just like, <laughs> It, I don't know. There's just a lot of like neat little twists and turns that I've been really enjoying learning about these different people and, and their dynamics. Yeah, very good. I've been able also to kind of step away from the whole idea that that their future has kind of already been set in stone and yeah. and just go with the idea that, you know, in general, we kind of know what happens with these people and and just roll with how well written they are all. Yeah. You no. Know, yeah. There's a lot, a lot of respect for the characters in this show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's actually written by people who it seems have actually seen Star Trek. So that's right. a big plus. And um, from my understanding, for this one, they actually hired a lot of um, pretty well-known like sci-fi authors to jump on board. So it's got a lot more um, care and understanding of the genre being put in. Nice. Well, I, I thank you guys for bringing it to my attention. Yay! Don't worry about watching Picard. I I did have to step away. I was like, oh, I'm sick. I'll watch all of Picard. And I got like halfway into one of the episodes. I think it's five. I was like, I feel so sick. I can't. I can't watch this anymore. So (laughs) I had to step away from that bad boy. Wow. It's bad. It's a bad show. It's a really bad show. That's too bad. If you like Next Generation, don't watch Picard. Unless, like me, I'm like, he's like a substitute for... He's my space dad, right? So it's I just want to watch my space dad in his retirement home having <laughs> having a good time. 
Alrighty. Well, I watched something that is uh, a, an amazing celebration and look at one of my my favorite comedian by far. So I was glad I saw it, I think, three times is uh, George Carlin's documentary on uh, oh, HBO. Sure. Really, really good. Holy shit, that's good. <laughs> it's, I think it's two parts, two plus hours per part and no wasted time. It, mm. it tells all the nasty stuff that he went through, the rough things that happened, how, you know, he wasn't always the greatest guy, but always trying to be the best he could be at what he was doing. And uh, I just, I thought it was phenomenal. Really, really gave a nice insight into him and the fact that um, they had so much of his writing. Yeah. You know, that they could pull off of and everything. I was like, wow, this guy documented everything. <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah. And I I had no I had known, you know, how he felt about his wife and watching his career a lot. You could see after his first wife died, he got really angry. His comedy got so much angrier. And they they addressed that in the documentary as well. Um and uh to see what they went through, because I hadn't read like a bio on him or anything. So a lot of stuff's gone. I knew I knew it wasn't great. I didn't realize how dark it was, but uh, it's still phenomenal. And yeah. to see him, the the movement from the kind of comedy he was. There's not a lot of comedians that have such incredibly distinct styles throughout their career. Where you know he's the hippy dippy weatherman, and then he's the uh, the hippie <laughs> comedian, and then kind of goofy, and then really political. So it was a lot of fun. So, highly recommended. Yeah, that's on HBO Max, I think. Yep. Yeah. Judd Apatow's uh, best thing in a very, very long time. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, you guys, the first couple episodes of The Boys are out. I have not watched it yet. How is it? Is it good? <laughs> it is. Uh, pretty over the top. <laughs> the first 20, 30 minutes of the first episode. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, I I'm a little surprised with what they get away with in this show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And I'll just tell you the guy who plays Homelander is terrifying. Jesus yeah. Christ. Man. He is uh, I just can't imagine being in a room with somebody like that and seeing the little ticks and weird things he does with his face. He is just spectacularly scary. Yeah. Have you seen all three of the first? Yes. Okay, yeah, he is Fuck, man, by the end of the third, I was just like, Jesus. Yeah, they're definitely um, upping the stakes. That's for yeah. sure. Um, yeah. That's, that's on uh, still, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Season three and still just, it's just an awesome show. Yeah. So good. Also, did you notice, um, so they brought in a couple of people from Supernatural, one of them, of course, being oh, yeah. uh, Dean, but the other one being Bobby Singer, whose real yeah. name is Bobby Singer, and who in The Boys is also called Robert Singer. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he has a problem. Maybe he's in his contract. <laughs> I must always have the same name. And, well, I know that Eric Kripke was the guy who created Supernatural, and so he's obviously friends with this guy. Maybe it's just yeah. a running joke between the two of them where you're just going to play your name. I don't know, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. I did not know that. So it's the, the same showrunner as Supernatural for the boys? The first 
five seasons. I think that Kripke was the one who created it and show ran it for hit the, what he had planned for it and then no, moved on. Like 26 seasons or whatever, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that he got a nice paycheck every episode well, though. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, I, during my sickness, I watched a couple of things just to like chill out too. Um, and things I wouldn't typically watch. And one of those was something I'd avoided called under the banner of heaven. Oh, geez. Read the book, read the book, man. Oof. Yeah. So that was, um, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to watch this show because I worked on a a reality TV series documenting FLDS behavior and practices. And I knew a lot and I read a lot of books and I was really like that working on that show kind of ruined my life for a bit. So I was really not sure if I was going to watch the show, but it's Andrew Garfield and um, I watched it. It was, it was really good. It is kind of like a mix of therapy for me and also a little bit like um, history lessons on, on how the Mormon uh, religion is and how the FLDS kind of broke away. But it was definitely fascinating. They did a good job. And I believe after this, Andrew Garfield was also like, I am taking a little break. I need some time. <laughs> yeah. I need some therapy, which would make a lot of sense. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. The, the book was incredible. I do want to see what they did with, with that. But uh, yeah. that was a hell of a read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Krakow, right? Like he's an incredible, yes, incredible author. Um, yeah. It's, it's a really weird. Thing that exists in America right now, like right now. And yeah. um, people are fanatics and they take what they believe and they really go for it. So, <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Religion, what? Religion, what? So, well, I'm, I'm diving back in a little bit into the sanity that is Andy Milligan. Oh my God. And uh, it's back. Yes. It, it is interesting to the man with two heads, <laughs> so, which is basically his take on uh, Dr. And Jek- Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And uh, <laughs> he's a singular kind of filmmaker. And I get why people love him and hate him. Um, I've started to enjoy his movies a little bit more be- with the mentality of, okay, this is like watching you can get some decent performances, but it's like watching a junior college play <laughs> because he's all about the word. He, he overwrites everything. It's not about the camera and stuff for him. It's all about the words. And so it's very much like a play would be as far as the way people speak to each other and the way they uh, interact. So it's sort of like that, but it's being shot by a junior high video company or no. video group. Because the visuals are whew, rough. Eric, but, you are not selling this to me at all. This sounds <laughs> awful. Oh, I would not recommend this to you in any way, shape, or form. Tony K loves this guy. I would definitely understand why he does, and I will. And I also have that weird quirkiness in a lot of the stuff I watch that Tony does. So I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I, I The next Severin box set that's coming out, I forgot the director's name. But he's the director of the um, uh, incredibly mixed up something that stopped living and became zombies or something like that. And uh, just a truly 
crazy filmmaker. So going along with the tradition of the Al Adams in box set and this one, I saw that popped up and going, order in that one. Oh my God. Another box of just insanely wild individual talent that you just, you just don't see the kind of movies these people make normally. <laughs> I feel like you have just made your way through all of cinema and now you're like, what else is out there? There's some of that, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there yet. I'm like, I haven't even seen all of the, you know, Argento movies yet. I haven't seen all the great, you know, Asian cinema yet. I don't, I'm not there yet. I'm not ready to watch some shit some dude made in his backyard while like high on acid. Yeah, well, that's part of the fun of it is his amazing ability to repurpose couches as uh, costuming and all this stuff. I mean, it's, Weird. That's bonkers. <laughs> is this the same two-headed movie where the the racist white guy gets the black head? That's not <laughs> no, that one. No, okay. It sounds like that, but no, this is uh, this is Jekyll and Hyde. It's the same person turning. Oh, okay. So, huh, yeah, I think that I'm not that desperate yet either. So, <laughs> there's plenty of good movies I'm sure out there that I haven't seen yet. Yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. Um. <laughs> All right, well, why don't we take a break, guys, and then we're going to come back. We're talking kidnapping and ransom movies. Address should be there, 1800 Ann Street. Hello? Yeah, dear driver, I'm on the ground. Want to get away? Now you can with Southwest Ferris as low as $59 one way. Yes to low Ferris with nothing to hide. That's transparency. We have returned. Eric, this was your subgenre pick. Yes, yes. Before I dive into that, I'm going to took the break to look up that uh, Seferin film that I was trying to think of. The, it's the incredibly strange films of Ray Dennis Steckler. And his most famous noise, he did uh, Rat Fink a Boo Boo, <laughs> one of his films, and the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. Huh? Fantastic. That's right. <laughs> I am looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> Run, so, don't walk one, though, <laughs> to your local website. <laughs> For today, we'll be discussing kidnaps and ransom movies. And I drew from my uh, Vinegar Syndrome films, the uh, Candy Snatchers. We'll take it. It started as a simple crime, the Candy Snatchers. For them, it was a new beginning. For her, it was the beginning of the end. Three losers who wanted to lead the good life. The Candy Snatchers. They'd do anything to get there. Please don't put me back in the hole! The Candy Snatchers. They were rough on candy. They were rougher on themselves. Get out of my way! Get out of my way! 
sent her father a piece of candy in a box. Oh, my God, no. The Candy Snatchers. They did things they couldn't even believe themselves. That is sick. That is really sick. She is old enough to be your mother. The Candy Snatchers. Bizarre, incredible, almost unbelievable. Ah! The Candy Snatchers. This is the one they're talking about. Ooh. And this was actually a pickup at Crypticon. The, uh, the guy who runs the booth there, if you sit and talk to, can be a lot of fun to talk to recommended this one and um i don't know if i want to say i'm glad he recommended it but it certainly is a it's a good watch. it's a it's a watch mm. so this is 1973 the rotten tomatoes score on this one is 83 from critics and 60 from the crowd so this has wow. got to be one of the higher rated films vinegar syndrome has in their collection uh, the estimated budget was two hundred fifty thousand, but I no idea. So box office unknown. Uh, director was a uh, uh, Guerdon Trueblood. Also directed Barnaby Jones episodes, a in a short version of the Fall of the House of Usher. Not a large directing career. Uh, written by uh, Brian Gindolf, who wrote Hard Times, losing it. And Hunter, uh, the director, also wrote it. And he's got a little bit more of a history on his writings. He wrote The Last Hard Men, Adam 12, Tarantula, The Deadly Cargo, and Jaws 3D. Oh, boy. <laughs> this stars Tiffany uh, Bowling, who is uh, an Electra Woman and Dina Girl. The TV series, The Sixth Sense, which I. Didn't recognize the name, but caught my eye for an obvious reason. Uh, Kingdom of the Spiders and lots of TV. Mm. Uh, ben Piazzo, 102 credits, including Rocky Five, Tell Me You Love Me, Junie Moon, The Blues Brothers, also tons of TV, of course. Uh, Susan Sennett is in Big Bad Mama, Submersion of Japan, and TV. And Brad David, who was in War Games, 9 to 5, in The Curious Case of the Campus Cops. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, so this is um, the, erp, the opening scenes. If you didn't know when this movie was made, you know immediately by the opening song. Because it is such a hippie rock, uh, early 70s rock sounding song. And it's the, the movie, the song is Money is the Root of All Happiness, which is also the bumper sticker on the back of the van that the kidnappers use. <laughs> so, like, that's right. It's got a van in it, a windowless van, always a sign of trouble. So it starts off right, right at the beginning. You've got the three kidnappers coming in, uh, two men and a lady, and they grab the character's name is Candy. So they grab Candy off the street. 
they take her to a side of the road kind of place where they've pre-dug a hole, bury her in it, <laughs> cover it with uh, wood so she's you know not actually direct buried, and put a little tube in there for her to breathe through. So I was like, oh, that's nice. Well, the whole thing is witnessed by a kid who's got the modern term is an intellectual disability, shall we say? And I'm pretty sure the kid they cast actually was uh, on the spectrum for sure. And boy, his mom is a nasty piece of work towards him. (laughs) But he sees this whole thing. And not only is he mentally slow, he cannot speak. So he's not really able to say what's going on. The idea of the film is they have, the kidnappers have captured this woman and they're going to, or this girl, and they're going to ransom her to their father who works in a diamond store. He is not wealthy, but he works there where he you know, can steal the uh, diamonds and bring them to her. Uh, the father, though, is acting pretty odd. He doesn't seem to have much of an interest in the fact that this child has been taken. Uh, doesn't tell his wife, uh, doesn't tell anybody. And goes to his mistress and brings her a big diamond necklace. So it's kind of obvious very early on that this guy doesn't give a shit about the kid. Um, yeah, this is like 25 minutes into the movie. You're going, okay, so he is, he's happy if this kid disappears and doesn't come back. The, meanwhile, the little kid is still trying to tell his mom that somebody has been kidnapped and, uh, She's basically abusive to the kid, so it's pretty rough. Um, And then that kid kind of disappears from the movie for a while, but he comes back in the end. But So the kidnappers figure out that this guy has no interest whatsoever in getting the kid back. And now they have to try to figure out, well, what do we do? So they think, well, shall we go and directly attack this guy at his job and steal his diamonds from then? Uh, should we figure out another way to make money? Do we kill the kid? Would uh, they, two of the, one, uh, one of the kidnappers is really vicious. One is really nice. And the woman is sort of in the middle. It's an early seventies movie. So you can probably imagine a couple scenes in the film with very uncomfortable scene with the woman getting raped by who's the guy who's supposed to be the nice guy. And then the kid gets attacked too. It's like, oh man, this is, oh, it's unpleasant. Early 70s filmmaking. Thank you, Vinegar Syndrome, for this recommendation in that respect. Um, But they do spend, a good chunk of the movie is then spent trying to figure out what they're going to do. They want to cut off, they're going to, well, let's cut off the lady's ear or the kid's ear and send it to the dad. But then they don't have the guts to, they don't want to cut off the ear. That's too violent for them. So they're not going to do that. So they come up with a different way to get an ear and send it in. But again, the guy doesn't care. So it really doesn't matter what they do. Um, So that's kind of what the rest of the movie is trying to figure out how they're going to make their money. Uh, The desperation in them grows quite a bit. And there's nice interactions with um, uh, the the nice guy who raped the woman, <laughs> trying to figure out how to save the girl from the guy who says he's killed 12 people and wants the kidnapped girl to be his 13th. Uh, so it's a dark film. 
And the ending is even darker. Oh, no. Outside of buying this from Vinegar Syndrome, this is a really hard movie to find. I didn't find any other place it's streaming. It's probably on YouTube because, you know, everything is. But um, the story was inspired by a real, real life kidnapping of uh, Barbara Jane Mackle in uh, Florida, 1968. Uh, so they, it's, it's loose, though. But the idea of them kidnapping and the person not being interested in the kid that got kidnapped. So, yay. Uh, that same story has also appeared in a mo movie called The Longest Night, uh, 83 Hours Till Dawn, the TV series Untold Stories Buried Alive, and A Crime to Remember, Coffin for Christmas. <laughs> wow. Super low budget in a lot of ways. They shot a lot of the stuff without any permits and uh, just guerrilla filmmaked it. The original title, which they decided to change because it's because uh, the producers said it sounds too much like a porno, was the Candy Snatch. <laughs> like, yeah, that does. <laughs> it's a, that was a good call. Candy Snatchers is a little iffy as it is too. Mm. Um, it does have a the film has a fairly decent cult following, which is understandable. It's well it's well done in its disturbingness. The one of the leads, though Tiffany, was not happy. She did the film. Um, she's elaborated the time I was doing cocaine and didn't really know what I was doing. Is very angry about the way my career had gone, and opportunities were not being given. And after doing this movie, the opportunities got even less. <laughs> and uh, she regrets that because she kind of felt like she was looked up to for some of the happy movies she was in before, and that kind of destroyed this one. And uh, she did not like the filming of the movie, which is understandable. This didn't look like a fun film to to have been uh, in front of the camera on. But um, so, yeah, another fun recommendation from Vinegar Syndrome. And uh, thank you all. And I'm sorry I picked this subject. <laughs> oh, my God. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, well, Vanessa, would you like to lighten our mood? <laughs> I sure would. I sure would. Um, like I said, yeah, you picked this subject and I was just like, I do not want to watch something dark and horrible. And I was like, I know. I'm going to think back to these other films that involve kidnapping that I found so fun and delightful <laughs> growing up. And for some reason, the two, two of the films that my mom exposed me to the most as a kid were <laughs> Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Which is about seven brothers kidnapping seven women and hauling them off to the mountainside. <laughs> and um, the uh, cult classic recently released on um, Severin, 1987 movie Overboard. <laughs> Somebody call for a carpenter? That's my wife's department. Mrs. Grant Staten III. Grant, I'm on the phone! Always knew what she wanted. I'm not paying for your mistake. And she always got it. You haven't got a single thing on this earth to do except for your hair. She had power. I... Taste. Oh. What is this gelatinous muck? Style. Are you going to bring me my lemon or do I have to squeeze it from my hat? And amnesia. 
seems a mystery woman was picked up by the Elk Cove garbage cow shortly after midnight. Excuse me, miss. Can you tell me your name? Of course I know my name. It's... I also, I was like, my mom really exposed me to some very interesting dynamics <laughs> for relationships, uh, but both so joyful. So, um, <laughs> yes, Overboard. Uh, that has a Rotten Tomato score of 44% from critics and 74% from audience. So, audience is like, sure. Um, the budget was $22 million and the box office was $26.7 million, so not a runaway hit. Uh, director Gary Marshall, um, he's um, the right, He's a writer, but just a director for this particular film. But um, some of the stuff that he's directed includes Beaches, Pretty Woman, Frankie and Johnny, Runaway Bride, Princess Diaries, Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, Mother's Day. Like those really bad compilation movies um uh but he wrote for a lot of tv in fact he created happy days he created mork and mindy he created laverne and shirley many many more also wrote on dick van dyke lucy odd couple so this guy is like old school sitcom legend god it was uh, written by Leslie Dixon, who has 18 credits, including Look Who's Talking Now, Mrs. Doubtfire, Thomas Crown Affair, Freaky Friday, and Limitless. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and the composer was um, Alan Silvestri, which um, you may have come across in recent times because he does the Marvel stuff. So um, big heavy hitter composer now. Not um, his finest hour in this particular film. Uh, definitely just kind of one zany tune that happens over and over again, but that's fine. It is starring Goldie Hawn as Joanna Staten, the rich bitch uh, lady. <laughs> She's been in 38 Things. She started off with Laughing, Private Benjamin, uh, was also in Death Becomes Her and First Wives Club. Kurt Russell plays Dean Prophet. We have talked about Kurt before. He's in 102 Things. A lot of things with Elvis in the title. Also, um, of <laughs> course, a lot of things with Carpenter in the byline, um, including um, Escape from New York, The Thing, Big Trouble, Escape from L.A., and recently Guardians of the Galaxy, Fast and Furious, um, to name just a tiny, tiny amount of stuff he's been up to. Edward Herman plays Grant Staten III, who is the rich man slash husband, He's been in 137 things. Uh, we have seen him in Lost Boys. I have seen him in Gilmore Girls. You guys have probably <laughs> seen him playing a role in Munsters. Um, Catherine Hellman, who is like the old 
older rich mother, 104 things. Um, I recognized her from being in Brazil. She was also in Time Bandits um, and Who's the Boss as Mona. So very, very cool. Um, And I guess she was in Soap as Jessica Tate, but I never saw Soap. So Roddy McDowell as Andrew Butler, Um, 270 things, including Planet of the Apes and Fright Night. And Mike Haggerty as Billy Pratt, the friend. Um, He's been in 115 things, including uh, uh, several episodes of Friends as Mr. Trigger. He was in the George Carlin show, and he was in lots and lots and lots of walk-on TV roles. So the story of this. Man, okay, so this is like a zany, fun, rom-com 80s movie, but the actual story is so fucking dark and horrible. (laughs) It's like really the worst of humanity. So a wealthy woman is parked uh, on a yacht off the coast of Oregon in Elk Cove. Um, Her husband insists, which is played by Edward Herman, so the wife is Goldie Hawn. um, Her husband insists on parking there while he does some bird hunting, I think. Bored, she decides to hire a carpenter to redo her closets. Dean Prophet, which is um, our Kurt Russell, comes out for an emergency repair and discovers a rude, entitled woman who wants a shoe rack. They immediately butt heads. He works for two days and creates an inventive, interesting closet system. She basically spends those two days avoiding him at all costs, except to walk past in scantily clad clothing, revealing a heart-shaped birthmark on her butt. Um, She treats everyone around her like garbage and insists on perfection. She is just a horrible human being. Um, When the job is done, of course, she basically freaks out and says, you made this closet out of oak. It should have been cedar. I'm not going to pay you. Get out of here. You know, and he's like, you might have wanted cedar, but you didn't say cedar. So um, you need to pay me. Basically, they get into a big fight on the bow of the boat. He calls her out and tells her exactly what she is, which is bored with nothing real in her life. She has to make up problems to complain about. She calls him a smelly Neanderthal because it's an 87 movie. Um, she pushes him off the boat and gets the boat to kind of put away. And then she throws his tool belt and his toolbox in the water after him, which I was like, okay, I know that this is a comedy, but I feel so hard for him and his situation at that point. Cause I'm like, tools are not cheap. That <laughs> sucks. You like, that's like hundreds of dollars more lady. So enraged, he leaves, um, and reveals to a friend of his and like a, little heart to heart that money is really, really tight. They're trying to work together to um, make a putt-putt golf course and turn things around, but he's not sure if he can wait that long. Um, At home, he has four boys that he's raising alone after the death of his wife. Um, He returns home to a principal who is walking out of his home in a total huff. She's super pissed and basically says they tried to light her on fire. And he's like, I don't know, the boys are going through an arson period. Um, she is disgusted with their lack of manners and almost feral existence. The home is a mess. The yard is full of like old dead trucks. It's muddy. It's messy. They have two dogs that are in the yard. This is like as backwater hicksy as you can get. Meanwhile, on the yacht, they decide to set out back towards New York. Uh, Joanna discovers that she forgot her wedding ring on the deck. And when her husband refuses to watch it because he's too busy watching um, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, 
she goes out at night on to the deck to, to retrieve it. However, the yacht is really unsteady because the captain has fallen asleep and is driving it with his feet. <laughs> so with a rough turn, she falls overboard straight into the sea at night, is calling out, but no one can hear her. And so next day, the local news revealed that they have found a mystery woman in the water suffering from amnesia. She was picked up by a garbage scow, and thus her photos look pretty rough. And she's in like a garbage scow, like jumpsuit uniform. Grant, her fiance, or sorry, her husband comes to get her, but here's her yelling at everyone and treating everyone around her like garbage. He decides to just leave her there and be single for a while. Um, she is so awful. The doctor puts out a reward, hoping that someone will come and claim her. And so <laughs> Dean, seeing this, knowing that she owes him $600, um, he decides to take, uh, show up and um, grab her and say that she is his wife. And his plan is to basically work her to her bones until he feels like the debt he is owed from his work on her yacht is repaid. Um, and he gets his four sons to be in on the deal. So he averages about $25 a day. So he's hoping he can keep her about a month uh, <laughs> to just be his wife. So um, he goes, he picks her up and they're like, hey, you know what? We need proof, sir, that she is in fact your husband. Because she's like, I don't recognize this guy. This is wrong. There is no way. I am not going home with this person. And he's like, well, let me tell you about this tattoo on her butt. And sure enough, it all pays off. And she's <laughs> like, oh no, he must be my husband because he knows about this weird tattoo on my butt. She goes back to this hell, hell home. She's, of course, disgusted. The dogs are constantly jumping on her. There's leaks, there's webs, there's dirt, there's just general chaos. The kids are just like flinging stuff everywhere. She is, she is sure that this is not right, but she has no other choice but to become his house slave and full-time babysitter because she has no recourse of saying that this is definitely not where I belong and apparently cannot leave. So um, Dean, in the meantime, basically makes up nonstop stories to explain away things that just don't make sense. Um, like he got his sons to go out and buy some like women's clothing, but didn't tell them what size. So they're all like enormous clothes. <laughs> and so he's like, oh yeah, hon, you were real fat for a long time there. You look great <laughs> now though. And she's just like, are you sure? It looks really short too. He's like, oh, you had a hunch and now you're all straight out. She's like, okay. She's like, how come I can speak French? And he's like, well, you were in the Navy. And uh, you did spend some time overseas. So it's just constantly explaining things away. But everything he explains is often very horrible. So she's like, how did we meet? And he's like, oh, yeah, when you were working at this fast food joint, you know, big dicks over on the side of the freeway. Like every story is awful. It's just awful. And she's constantly like, oh, I'm a fat, stupid, blah, blah, blah person. Um, and so she also says at one point, Hey, I need to see wedding pictures. She's constantly questioning the situation. And so he goes to his friend and has wedding pictures doctored using her like <laughs> found footage pictures that were on the news. So in every picture, she looks surprised and terrified. Also never working, having worked a day in her life, Joanna must basically learn how to cook, clean, care for children, and eventually become a great housewife. Um, it's very zany for a long time there with 
very insane music where she's like, I don't know how to use a chainsaw. And she's like whipping it around and like, you know, like getting, cutting off the scarecrow's head. I don't know how to do dishes. She just, when the kids are done eating, she just takes the whole tablecloth and takes everything on it and puts it in the sink and just gets a hose and starts hosing it down. There's just a lot of zaniness. Like she, she vacuums up the cereal out of the cereal bowls. She, she has no idea what she's doing, but let me tell you after a month of this, she gets pretty good. She really bonds with the kids a lot. Dean is constantly like going off to drink with his buddies and, and go and play bowling and whatever. And, and actually, he's also working a second job at night. So he's not around a lot. And um, so she finds out one of the kids doesn't know how to read. She teaches him how to read. Um, the principal and the teachers are really horrible towards the kids. And she goes in and defends them at one point and basically tells them that they're pieces of shit because her kids actually are sick and they're like trying to make them take a test. Um so uh, they avoid being intimate. So that's a big plus. You're like, oh, thank God he's not having sex with her and be like, you owe me, lady. Right. Although there is one moment where you're like, getting awful close to that. Please <laughs> don't do it. Okay, he didn't. Thank you. Um, and he's making her sleep on the couch to better her back. Um, however, eventually they do sort of fall in love. He, he tries to tell her the truth, but no one lets him like the kids are like, no, you are our mom. And he's like, no, we found you. We put you here. We took you here. You're not the woman. And they're like, no, you're, we love you, mom. And like his best friend is like, no, no, we all went to high school together. I don't know what he's talking about. Like, he's just being, he's just trying to cover for me. Like, no, no. And, and Dean's like, what the fuck, dude, I'm trying to be honest and tell this woman because she can't be here forever. And his best friend's like, yeah, but your life, your life is better and you guys belong together. So, um, no one will let him tell the truth. And in the meantime, he fakes her birthday to get out of explaining away something else. So they go in and celebrate the birthday together where they fall in love and have a big kiss. And he, they tell a story, a romantic story about the sea and whatever. So, um, <laughs> meantime, Grant, who's off having sex with everybody and anybody he can, and apparently has gotten his boat to L. Yeah, he's gone up to LA. So, um, I don't know how they were going to get to New York. Anyway, so, <laughs> physics, and whatever. Uh, he's, he's sleeping around and, um, Joanna's mother keeps calling and is like, I haven't spoken to my daughter in a month. And if you don't produce her, I'm going to send people to go and cut off your balls. So he's like, I'm going to go find her. Um, goes off to find her, of course, finds her in this crazy situation. Um, as soon as she sees him, she instantly remembers who she is. And there's this really heartbreaking scene where she's just going through and recounting like, oh, hey, oh my God, Dean, look, it's Grant. Oh my God. And then she's realizing a little, little by little what all has been deceived to her. Um, and uh, so she goes back with Grant and the kids really miss her. Dean really misses her, but he's like, she's gone. It's over. And of course the kids are like, no, we have to go and rescue mom. And she, in the meantime, suffers from major Stockholm syndrome. And suddenly she's now a good person. And she's like hanging out with the crew of her boat. And she's like doing shots with them. And she's drinking beer. And everyone's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And she's polite. She's getting the serving tray and offering people snacks. And uh, I think she's a broken human being, personally. But that's okay. <laughs> I think he just destroyed her. Oh, my. <laughs> and she's like, but she's like, I'm in love with this guy. And I'm going to go back. And so, of course, um, uh, 
it's a 1987 rom-com. They, they return to each other. There's a beautiful scene that is definitely my favorite scene in the whole movie where the kids and um, Dean are on the boat at the end of the film. They got a Coast Guard boat and they're all wearing life jackets and they're looking at her in their little glasses and she pulls up her binoculars and looks at them and they're all looking at each other. And um, there's this guy who's narrating on the boat for the Coast Guard where he's like, there seems to be a woman off the port, sir. And then she jumps in the water and he's like, woman overboard and then you know what's his name um, russell crowe jumps overboard man overboard russell Crow? <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> Kurt russell, thank you and then her husband is pushed overboard and there's a third man overboard sir and it's extremely sweet so um even with giving you guys basically the entire plot it's it's a really sweet wonderful, heartfelt 80s movie that if you ignore the horrors of the fact this woman's been kidnapped and brainwashed <laughs> to become a perfect housewife, if you ignore all of that, it's extremely sweet and, and wonderful. So definitely feel free to check it out. Um, the things I liked about it, that Coast Guard narr- narrator is incredible. And I have a fun fact about him in a minute. Um, the insane 80s rich people costumes are very good. Just a lot of gold and crazy hair and crazy like lifestyle stuff that is just of its time. Very good. Um, and the acting like across the board is pretty, pretty solid. You do feel her sense of falling in love with those kids. I don't like, again, that it's really fucked up. Um, <laughs> the music is super fucking wacky and awful and repetitive. The 80s comedy feel is so over the top and zany. It is literally a screwball comedy. So if you like screwball comedies, this is a perfect movie for you. I like the nostalgia of it and the fact that I was raised on this and that's what I love about it. But if I had not seen this a million times as a kid, I'm not sure I would love it as much. Also, people (laughs) from Oregon are not hillbillies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know where this comes from, but they're like, really like, oh yeah, those Oregon Nonians. Like, no. Okay. All right. Anyway, <laughs> um, some fun trivia. Taglines include, she was born to spend. He was born to offend. There's only way they could fall in love by accident. Yeah. <laughs> and from opulence to rags to love. No, not good. Not good taglines. Um, this is a loose remake of the Cary Grant, Sophia Loren comedy Houseboat from 1958. Um, the plot was also influenced by an Italian movie called Swept Away from 1974. It was, in fact, filmed in Newport, Oregon and features the flag um, on the yacht from the Seattle Yacht Club, um, as well as um, there's Seahawks and Oregon gear um, throughout. The rocking motion of the yacht caused a lot of the crew members to fall asleep while shooting. Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell's own young kids were always with them during the making of this film. The youngest, Wyatt Russell, who we all know, uh, took his first steps on the set. Kurt Russell's father, Bing Russell, plays the sheriff. The Coast Guard spotter, um, who's the guy who's yelling things, uh, is played by Gary Marshall's son, Scott Marshall. and He does a perfect job. Uh, during filming, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell hosted a barbecue for the whole cast and crew. Uh, <laughs> Dean Prophet's old Dodge pickup was later used as the pickup that tailgated Chevy Chase and his family in the opening se- scenes of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> the yacht that is Joanna's yacht shows up in the film Indecent Proposal. The Coast Guard ship also appeared in Baywatch and Columbo. It was built in Tacoma. 
there are just ships, man. I didn't realize that all of these vessels just get reused over and over and over again by films. So that was just really fun. Kurt Russell says that this movie and Captain Ron are the two movies everyone seemed to have on their boats. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Looking back on the film, Gary Marshall thinks that it's still one of the funniest pictures he ever made. Um, one of several films Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell star in together, including Swing Shift, Christmas Chronicles, and of course, Christmas Con- Chronicles Part 2. Hawn took a 15-year break from af- acting um, to work with kids. Uh, so we haven't seen him her a lot in recent days. It's because she started working in a program called Mind Up, and she's really passionate about it. And I found a lot of interviews of her talking about this thing that I'm like, you sound like a crazy rich person trying to help the kids, but whatever. Um This film has actually been adapted several times. It was adapted in a 1992 Hindi film, Ek Lagka Ek Lagki. It was adapted by a a Malay lum uh, in 1997 movie called Maya Pom Pom Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Maya Pon Mon. It was adapted in a South Korean TV series in 2006 called Couple or Trouble. Adapted in Switzerland in 2012. Uh, in Liv und Ander Unfolle, uh, and in a 2013 Russian miniseries, Wife Rented. Uh, it was remade, of course, in 2018, starring Anna Ferris and Eugenio Derbez. Um, De- uh, but the roles reversed were Derbez is a wealthy man and Ferris is a single mother. Um, the Severn release has a new 2K scan and an interview with the screenwriter. Um, uh, the way in which they got this movie is, of course, probably the best part of this whole thing, which was discussed in their Severn Films podcast. Basically, there was a heated conversation with wine involved, some drunk texting. Someone put in an offer. The offer was accepted before they sobered up. And um, they were just like, okay, we got this film. They said they were pretty limited with the, what they could do with it. The weirdest Severn release of <laughs> Exactly. A um, slip a slip cover. A slip cover overboard. edition. Yes, there you go. Of overboard. <laughs> it's so even, weird. Yeah, this poster's not that good, but um there's another poster I like a lot more for it. But uh <laughs> yes, looks looks great. Did a great job. So that is my movie. I think I saw this way back then, but I, I don't remember much of it. I think that it you know it was probably not something I thought was very good. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. But, you know, if you need some comic relief, if you're not feeling good, it's a good movie to throw on. I much prefer Captain Ron, I think. I haven't seen Captain Ron. Oh, my. (laughs) It's also quite stupid, but... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Eric, I kind of hate you because (laughs) I chose, from 
man that was murdered last night on Polanski Street was a rabbi. There's eight dead bodies in here. Eight holy men. Bound to bring back more than a killer. According to the men, the scepter was broken into nine sections. What kind of man kills like this? No soon enough. Bound to face the most terrifying enemy he has ever known. The scepter is the key to the gates of hell. Who was it that ripped the heart right out of his chest? Have you any idea who I am? Let me introduce myself. because it was released straight to video two years after Canon had filed for bankruptcy. So no Rotten Tomato critic rating. Audience gives it 32%. It was directed by Aaron Norris. Aaron Norris directed Delta Force 2, Sidekicks, Top Dog, all of which are Chuck Norris films because Aaron is Chuck's youngest brother. (laughs) And it was written by Brent V. Friedman, who wrote... Movies I like, uh, The Resurrected, Ticks, Necronomicon, The Book of the Dead. Yeah. It stars Chuck Norris, who is known for breathing air only five times per day. (laughs) And for having no chin beneath his beard, but instead just another fist. (laughs) It also stars Calvin Levels. He was in Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, Point of No Return, Adventures in Babysitting. This is a very bad actor. <laughs> it also stars Christopher Neem. You might recognize him from Suburban Commando, Ghostbusters 2, and Steel Dawn. And Sherry G. Wilson, who was in Crime Wave, Easy Rider 2, and 196 episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. Aww. Also 127 episodes of Dallas. Oh, jeez. All right, you guys. This fucking movie opens with a Star Wars crawl. It is literally <laughs> yellow words crawling up the screen and into the distance. Oh. And then we see a group of Templar knights who bust in on this ancient cult who are preparing to sacrifice a child to the devil. It's shot very badly and looks really <laughs> cheap, even though it is shot on location in Israel. So they've got all these really ancient buildings and everything, and they don't do a fucking thing with it looks really bad mm-hmm. they uh they save the kid and kill the cult leader or do they Uh-oh. and then they smash his scepter into nine pieces then in the 1950s some grave robbers open up the tomb of the cult leader and accidentally raise him from the dead and then in the 90s we're introduced to police detective frank shatter Uh, And his partner, Calvin Jackson, who are roughing up an informant in an alley. Uh, So then we see a a scene with a prostitute uh, getting dressed in a seedy motel. And the John that she has been with is none other than the cult leader who hasn't aged a day. His name in this is Lockley. She pisses him off and he throws her out the window (laughs) where she lands (laughs) on Frank Shatter's car. Uh, I like... Frank, because he comes from the uh, the old cop 
trope of uh, no time for backup. And so he goes rushing in there with a gun, tells his partner, Calvin, to call the cops. <laughs> it's like, you guys are the cops. But uh, he goes up there and uh, he gets into the hotel, but in the dark, he can't see Lockley's face. And Lockley kicks the shit out of him and escapes just as uh, Shatter shoots him like three times. He's just like, how could I have missed at this, at this range? But I must have because the guy ran away. So then uh, Shatter and Jackson are called in to investigate the death of a rabbi who's had his heart ripped out of his body. Uh, Calvin Jackson has a very hard time with this thing. Uh, the heart is really bothering him. And in fact, throughout the movie, he is bothered by the amount of gore of these killings and stuff like this. And I'm just like, all right, once or twice is fine. But <laughs> this acting is very, very bad. And, uh, and on top of that, uh, Frank Shatter isn't bothered at all by it, as you can imagine. Um, did you know that Chuck Norris can dribble a bowling ball? I found this out in my research. So, uh, so Shatter and Jackson are assigned to accompany the rabbi's body back to Israel. And when they get there, they are told by the local law enforcement that they are not allowed to do anything but be tourists. So they enlist the help of a of a little kid, who um, well, actually, no, this they get into this weird thing where they stop a fight between kind of an older kid and a younger kid. And then, uh, they send them off on their way. And, uh, Calvin Jackson finds out that the little kid stole his wallet. So they catch the older kid and they enlist him. He has info on the guy that they're looking for, although they still don't quite understand who it is that they're looking for. And, uh, they, they go and talk to, um, they're looking for this particular scientist or uh, archaeologist who would have known the rabbi. When they get there, he's not there, but his assistant, Leslie, is. Leslie is quite attractive, and she and Chuck are hitting it off pretty well to the point where uh, Calvin at one point says, hey, I'm here too. This is the level of humor, right? Uh... <laughs> As if maybe she'd also be interested in him. Uh, you know, for a three-way or something, but I don't believe she is. So then Leslie introduces them to the professor she's working for, and it is dun-dun-dun Lockley, the guy that uh, Chuck had fought, but he didn't recognize him. Remember, it was dark in the place. But it actually turns out that Lockley is Prosepanos, um, who is either an evil spirit or an evil wizard or something along those lines. It doesn't matter because both of those ideas are stupid. <laughs> we, through a series of really badly filmed scenes, <laughs> we find out that Lockley is actually hunting down uh, nine rabbis who each have a piece of this scepter that was broken, you know, at the very beginning. Mm. Um, so by killing them, and then he's going to have to sacrifice a woman of divine blood, then he can raise Satan. Cool. Uh, you guys, I was, I was just, <laughs> just drinking wine and watching this movie. <laughs> Getting angrier and angrier. Oh, it's, Kelly. it's shot so badly that I, I mean, I'm sure that. Aaron Norris probably shot a lot of the Walker Texas Ranger stuff, but this looks like that. It looks like early nineties television. 
it's shot in Israel, you guys. It's shot on location in Israel. There is just history all around them and a bunch of really bad shots of that history. Mm. Uh, and, and it's so long ago that, you know, some of the shots I was like, oh, this would have looked great if it was lit a little better or something like that. They come upon this really cool old building and, and it's just, you know, it's shot at night. So the building is lit by a blue light that I guess is supposed to be moon or something. And then it's just dark behind it and all this. And, and, you know, nowadays you'd go in there and somebody would just go in digitally and make the stars pop or something like that and just make a cool looking shot. But there's none of that in this movie. (laughs) Here's where the kidnapping comes in. Lockley kidnaps Leslie. And although there's no ransom, there's no way in hell I had time enough to watch another movie. So... This one had sucked all the joy out of my life. I was like, this is the movie you get. Um, There's a scene where. uh, uh, Oh, okay. Wait. Okay. So Shatter and Jackson, they have to fight him, rescue the girl and save the world, which they do in an extremely boring climax, because depending (laughs) on how these movies go and who is starring in it, what is required to stop the evil is exactly what this person can do. So for in this movie, um, Chuck Norris roundhouse kicks the, the devil. <laughs> sure. Because that's what he's best at. You know, in, in End of Days, Schwarzenegger kills the devil with gigantic guns. You know, it always happens to be whatever these guys are good at. But maybe you go, hey, let's not put Chuck Norris in a movie where he has to fight the devil. Because roundhousing Satan is not that cool. I don't know. It's kind of on brand for Chuck Norris, though. Well, that's my point. <laughs> Why don't we give him villains he can roundhouse? <laughs> no, he's kicking Satan's ass. <laughs> I'm taking so, Chuck Norris movies, once you get out of the 80s, nosedive. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he kept his career going with Texas Ranger, but yeah. his movies were... Steven Seagal probably watched a couple of them going, damn, dude. Yes, I'm sure. Um, And the tone of this movie is so weird because it's almost like they had made a police academy movie with all of the lame humor of that, but then threw in some supernatural elements in it. Uh, Because at one point, um, Jackson is upset that Shatter made him call back to Chicago to their chief to give a report instead of Shatter doing it, that he then insinuates to the chief, who is an older, unattractive woman, that Shatter is interested in her. And so then she gets kind of, you know, <laughs> on the phone and all this. And I'm like, this is this is the level of humor you guys are gonna go to. And then there's there's like a running joke where Calvin gets um his wallet stolen repeatedly. And you know, that it, it's just it's just really bad. He is the the humor in the movie, and it's um it's mildly racist humor, and <laughs> it's not funny. It's just like, oh boy. Very basic 80s police academy style humor, but, you know, I don't, I, the tone of this is all over the place and all of it is off. So, um, yeah, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to say give this movie a really hard fucking pass. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Uh, I do have some trivia. Okay. Um, <laughs> If you want a list of Chuck Norris's enemies, just check the extinct species list. Oh. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Chuck Norris can speak Braille. You guys know that one? I did not. Uh, the Dark is afraid of Chuck Norris. Outer space exists because it's afraid to be on the same planet with Chuck Norris. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. I do have a tagline. <laughs> Mess with this Chicago cop, and that's hell to pay. That's fine. <laughs> that's my uh, fucking movie. Angry. Amazon I'm, review. I'm angry again having watched it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I thought this sounded so cool. I was like, Kelly picked such a good movie, and that allowed me to feel free to pick like something that wasn't super genre y. As, as thought, soon as I saw the year and the eye, I'm going, oh, dude, that's <laughs> going to be Well, rough. I thought, how, how bad could it be? It's got Chuck Norris in it, right? Yeah. I'm going to have at least some good fight scenes. There is a fight scene <laughs> in the dark. Chuck Norris gets attacked in his room when the lights are out. And so all you see are like silhouettes flashing by a, a window and stuff like this. And then, you know, <laughs> and I was like, now, did something happen? Was this supposed to be a better scene? And maybe Chuck was under the weather and they were just like, hey, we're running out of time on this. So we got to do what we can do. I don't know what it is, but it, it did not work. And they have then, God, all right. Look, you guys don't care about the ending of this movie. If you wanted to watch this, you would have. Uh, at the end, Leslie is shackled like a spread eagle on an altar, this uh, this underground lair, and uh, they're trying to un un. I don't know what they're trying to do. She's chained, so she's got like locks there. They're trying to pick the locks, I guess. But they keep having to stop to fight off Prosatanos. So they'll start working on it, and then all of a sudden, Calvin will get the shit kicked out of him. And Chuck has to go fight Prosatanos, and then he'll roundhouse kick him or something, and he'll disappear. So then they go back to working on the chains like four <laughs> times. And meanwhile, she's just spread eagle on this altar. Like and she keeps whispering something, and the sound was so bad that I couldn't quite hear what she was whispering. But she does finally tell them, "Look, uh, it's the it's the staff that he has put back together. You know, the nine pieces he has put back together, and that's how he's going to raise Satan." Uh, they're like. Uh, She's, she says, he can be killed by the staff. And so Chuck runs over to it and grabs it and throws it at him and it stabs him. And then the guy, I feel bad for the actor because he has to kind of lurch around going, while this uh, fog is being pumped in and, and really bad um, earthquake effects are happening. And he's he's making a noise that I think they probably thought, hey, we'll fix that in post and, and make that a weird wailing, you know. But instead, it's just him going. I was, I was just, I was furious. Yeah, the, the movie got a little more amused in my head because when you said Leslie, I pictured Leslie Nielsen. Me too. Sure. <laughs> it's just, well, this sounds, this sounds hilarious. No, wait, it's not Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> I thought perhaps, I mean, she's quite attractive, uh, you know, and, and there's a scene, oh, fuck you guys. There's a scene at the end where they're going to kiss, they're in the airport, and she's like, I hope I'll see you when I come to Chicago. And he's like, you definitely will. And they get close, they're about to kiss, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure I've ever seen Chuck Norris kiss anyone. 
And uh, it gets interrupted because um, Calvin is in the back in a, some TV uh, sporting event. Uh, somebody has won something. And uh, he's like, yeah, all right. And uh, so they turn to face him. And then he goes to, uh, to check for his wallet. And his wallet is gone. Oh, no. And the kid who stole it is running. And we get an ending that is a... Uh, you know, a stop screen, uh, you know, what do you call that? Freeze frame? Freeze frame. A freeze frame, thank you. And it's oh. the kid, ah, like this, running towards the screen, and behind him, Calvin, ah, and then credits roll on this freeze frame. So, uh, what's the uh, upcoming session? <laughs> yeah, Vanessa, do not let me down. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm so sorry, Kelly, that sounds but god I, awful. I did it to myself, you guys. Oh, <laughs> Chuck Norris did that to you in his wrath. Um, so, yeah. So something that I've been thinking about for a little bit is there are, I always have this backlog of movies of things that I've told people that I will watch because they've recommended them to me and they sound awesome. And I'm like, I will totally watch that movie. That is my pick. I want you guys to pick a film that you have been meaning to watch, have promised somebody you would watch pull it out and watch it. Wow. So, yeah. A lot of those movies for me are movies I always kind of feel like are homework. So it's like a lot of classics yeah. that I probably should have watched, but but this has to stay within our genre, right? Um, It would be good if it was within a genre. Yeah. So it, it doesn't have to be necessarily just horror movies, but it should be a genre film. Okay. Within our I like genre. that. So. Yeah, this this may or may not be a great excuse for me to watch a DVD that's currently downstairs. <laughs> hey, there you go. That I borrowed from somebody. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I like it. I like it. Um, okay, this is the part where we thank everybody for participating in the Value for Value program, for liking and sharing posts, for racing to share the post, the release date first, and all of that <laughs> stuff. We love it. We love you, and uh, we can't thank you enough for it. Yes, thank you. And thank anything you. else, guys? No. Okay. Can we do this in person next week? Sure. Hope so. I, All right. I think so. I think so. All right. Hopefully, my uh, black velvet painting will be framed and hung. Yeah. There we go. It. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, let's take off. We are coming back in one week, and we are talking about movies we were promising we'd watch at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Promises, promises. <laughs> oh, that's going to be the title. Okay. All right. See you guys. Bye. Brain Geons Radio is artisanal quality podcasting, handcrafted with all natural ingredients, and edited to perfection by Eric Morgret. Our blistering theme song is Strange Eons Part 1 by the band Nightshade and is used with permission. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider dropping a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Run, don't walk to your local website.